Welcome to this session about legacy non-existing modernization with AWS. If you're part of a large organization that's at least 10 years old, it's very likely that this organization has somewhere some non-existing systems sitting in the data center. Now, those non-existing systems can benefit from AWS value proposition. They can be modernized with AWS. Now, it is true that those systems, I mean, if you look at the underlying hardware, it's not the type of hardware that we typically find within AWS data centers. If you look at the software stack that's on top of the system, it's not typically the type of software stack that we find within AWS. So the question then becomes, well, how can we modernize the systems? How can we do a migration of such a system onto AWS? How can we integrate and get benefits from AWS services? How can we guarantee that AWS has the capabilities to provide the quality of service to run some of those workloads? So all of these are topics that we're going to address during this presentation today. And before we do so, let me introduce myself. My name is Phil Devalens. I'm a principal solution architect with AWS. And I focus on uh, assisting customers and partners worldwide for their modernization journey for non-XSX legacy workloads. So since the beginning of 2019, we've seen a, a change. We've seen a surge in the demand from customers for modernizing their workloads to AWS. So it's not only customers that are looking and asking questions, it's also customers that are completing their projects. So this is a very good sign that now customers don't externalize or don't isolate those workloads, don't separate them to the rest of their modernization journey, but actually want to include that and get the benefit of AWS for the legacy platforms as soon as possible. So what do I mean by non-XC6 workloads? Well, this can be of three kinds, either mainframe systems, such as IBM Z, Unisys ClearPass, HP Nonstop. Those can be mid-range systems as well, such as AS400, also called iSeries or SystemI or IBM I, open VMS systems. These can also be Unix proprietary systems, such as AIX, Solaris, HP UX, and a few other flavors like True64. And customers want to modernize all those systems for many reasons. One of the big reasons is around cost reduction. For example, a mainframe can be very expensive. Sometimes it's not a platform that's very expensive, but it's more because that platform is end of life. So support contracts that are necessary to still support that platform, uh, they have to pay a premium for that. Another big reason is around agility. Customers want to get agility at the infrastructure level and agility at the application level. Customers are also trying to increase the reliability of those platforms. Some of those platforms are aging. Um, they have some parts that are failing. It's getting harder and harder to maintain them. So by moving those workloads to AWS, then they can benefit from a modern infrastructure with reliable components. Customers want to also reduce their technical debt, go away from archaic interfaces, archaic protocols, archaic languages. Customers want to support their digital strategy, embrace the cloud benefits. Many customers want to get data insight from those platforms. Those platforms have been there for a long time. They host some critical business data. They want to be able to exploit that data and do data analytics from it. And finally, many customers are facing challenges around the skill set. Some of those legacy platforms require some skills that are hard to find on the market. Many people that were maintaining those platforms are getting retired. So customers are really trying to find some ways to modernize those platforms so that new talents out of the university then can just maintain those systems. So, as you can see here, we're very fortunate to have many customers that have gone through that journey and that have been successful modernizing those systems to AWS. 
So you can see those customers are from many industries. We have some from the financial services industry, some of them are from public sector, some of them are from media, travel, retail, etc. And what we do within AWS is we look at the indiv each individual successful project, we look at the patterns, we look at the best practices, and then we consolidate them so that we can get, then give them back to the customers and to the partners so that when they entertain a new project for legacy modernization, then they can reuse those best practices and those patterns. This also shows that definitely we can modernize the legacy systems to AWS. So from those customer experiences, what are they doing? How are they modernizing to AWS? And this is in summary all the options that we see customers taking. So there are two big families of options. Some of them are geared towards short-term migration, which means shutting down the legacy system and migrating over to AWS within a, a short time frame. Could be a few months, but maximum less than a year or less than two years. And in that family, we see customers are using hardware emulation. With hardware emulation, you can just do a lift and shift of that system onto AWS. Some customers are using middleware emulation. With middleware emulation, you actually take the code, port it over, and then recompile it on a middleware emulator. Some customers choose to do automated refactoring. With automated refactoring, you preserve the business functionality, but you modernize the underlying software stack. And then some customers choose to do middleware replatforming. When the middleware is common across operating system from the legacy platform to AWS, then we can use modern middleware replatforming. And then we also see a second family of options, which is when customers don't want to shut down the legacy system in the short term, but they still want to benefit from AWS value proposition. So what they do is that they augment. They augment their legacy platform with some AWS capabilities. And in that space, we see some customers doing data analytics, some customers create new channels or new functions. Some customers deploy their dev and test environments onto AWS. And some customers use AWS for backup and archival. Now, for all those options, there is no one-size-fits-all. There is no just one single solution that works for every use case. So the larger the legacy platform is, the more likely it is that one workload will follow one option and another workload will follow another option. And for all those options, we can do incremental transitions, making sure that we don't have like a big bang approach, but we can smooth the transition and the migration or the modernization to AWS. So let's focus first on all the short-term migration options that we have. So again, these are migrations that can be done either within weeks, within months, or within a one to two year time frame. And this really follows the overall mass migration strategy from, uh, from AWS, all the best practices. First, we're recommending customers to migrate as quickly as possible and then optimize later. And the reason we do so is because customers can get a lot of value from AWS just from migrating over without it doing any optimizations yet. There is a lot of value from the underlying infrastructure. And then the other reason why we recommend short-term migration is because those projects can be complex. So if you want to reduce the risk, we actually have to make sure that those projects don't last too long so that then we can achieve some tangible business results. So this slide is, is pretty important because it shows what are the various options and how they compare to one another. So on the left-hand side, you can see the legacy non-X86 hardware and all, everything that's running on top of it. So you can see the legacy operating systems, the application middleware and database over it. Then you can see the application code, the utilities, the data format, and all this is supporting the business function. And then on the right-hand side, you can see the various options and how they are impacted by the transformation. So you can see in blue what stays the same, and in yellow what's being changed. 
So when you do hardware emulation, the hardware emulator will mimic the behavior of the uh, legacy hardware. That means you can actually do a lift and shift of the entire software stack exactly the same, migrating to AWS. When you choose middleware emulation, you actually pour the code over and you recompile the code onto the middleware emulator. And so the impact is much larger. You can see the uh, middleware is changing to a middleware emulator. You can see the database is a new database. You can see the operating system is different, et cetera. And we'll get deeper into what the impact of those uh, changes are. With automated refactoring, you keep the business functionality, but the underlying stack is being transformed. There are various transformations that can happen at the time, and we'll get into the details about the possible transformations. With modern middleware replatforming, the middleware that has the same code base across operating systems is used as an interface so that the application and the data on top of it can be moved easily from one operating system to another. So if we look at those options, uh, depending on which legacy platform you have, some of them could be better suited. So if we look, for example, at mainframe or mid-range platform, the two most popular options that we see currently among customers are option number two and option number three. Either they typically do middleware emulation or they typically do automated refactoring. Now, if a customer has a Unix proprietary platform, we see actually two other options that are more, more popular. We see hardware emulation, that's quite popular, and we also see some customers doing modern middleware replatforming, option number four here. Now, you can see that uh, every option has a unique value proposition. There is no one-size-fits-all. So depending on the specific technical stack and what it's doing, depending on what the customer is trying to achieve, depending on how fast they want to go, then every option has its pros and cons. So this chart shows, with various dimensions, the value you can get from those migrations. So at the, at the left-hand side, and we'll start analyzing the duration. And interestingly, you can see the project cost is really linear with the duration. The longer the project, the more expensive the project is. So with hardware emulation, because the hardware is mimicking the, the behavior and because you can do a lift and shift, then the typical hardware migration can take a few weeks or maximum a few months. With middleware emulation or automated refactoring, the code has to be recompiled. There are mass code changes. Um, there are a lot of tests that need to happen. So those projects for medium-sized workloads of about a few million lines of code would take more around a year. If a customer chooses to repurchase a new software package, that typically takes more time because there are a lot of uh, manual developments that are required to customize the software package to the specific needs uh, of the original legacy system. And then finally, if a customer chooses to do a manual rewrite, well, that's what takes the longest time. And the reason is because, well, we need to extract the business rules from the original legacy system. We need to define the new specification. We need to define the new test cases. We need to define uh, everything that's going to go into in, in the logic, define which components are going to be deployed. So that's the type of project that takes the longest time, more around four or five years time frame for a few million lines of code. Now, on the vertically, you can see that uh, the different themselves also on the cloud agility. And what I mean by cloud agility is based on the cloud-native maturity model. And that model favors the use of managed services. It favors the use of 12-factor app best practices. It favors the use of microservices and automation, such as CI-CD pipelines. So you can see that with hardware emulation, because you preserve the entire legacy stack, then you don't get much benefit from an agility perspective. Now, if you move on to middleware emulation, then you can start being able to use some managed services. 
So you can actually get some benefit from that. And then you can also start being able to implement a CI-CD pipeline, continuous integration, continuous deployment pipeline. So you can get some application agility at this time. With automated refactoring, what you're getting is more like object-oriented, service-oriented, and it can easily integrate with many AWS services. So you get, you get really higher cloud agility with automated refactoring. And then with manual rewrites, because you can pick and choose exactly the agility that's desired for each function, then that's how you can get the maximum agility uh, on, onto AWS. So again, because we're focusing on the short-term uh, migration, we're going to spend more time talking about hardware emulation, middleware emulation, and automated refactoring. So let's start with legacy hardware emulation. So that's the closest that is to a rehost project. So as I said before, here you can really do a lift and shift of the entire stack. What the hardware emulator is doing, it's actually translating the instruction from the legacy um, system and translating that to XADC instruction set. So what that means is that on the fly, it's actually do, doing the translation. So the good thing with that is that there is no change that's required for the uh, legacy stack. The operating system stays the same, or the middleware stays the same, or the application code stays the same. So because there is no impact, then there are far less tests that are required, and the migration can happen, can happen much quicker. Now, at the same time, the hardware emulator is a software component, and it has to do all that instruction translation all the time. So there is a potential performance impact here. And depending on the application profile, depending on what the application is doing, the hardware where it's coming from, well, that performance impact can be more or less noticeable. So the best practice is really to do a, a performance benchmark and to look at how to tune that emulator so that it performs properly on, on the AWS side. Um, so from a, a use case perspective, we see customers using more the hardware emulator when they are actually dealing with a stabilized application. Also when they are uh, doing large data center migration and they want to be able to do that migration as quickly as possible. And we also see some customers using hardware emulation when they are doing, they want to upload some dev and test uh, environments onto AWS. The benefit of using hardware emulation onto AWS is that AWS will provide you with many instance types. So depending on the requirement of the workload, then you can add more CPUs, add more memory, add more network bandwidth, etc. So you can do a fine tuning of, of, that, of the resources that are available to the hardware emulator. Also, another benefit is that while the migration is transparent to the end users, even the system administrators, they'll be able to find the operating system the same, or the middleware is the same. So it makes it very easy and seamless from a migration perspective. Let me give you an example. I do have a, a customer that did that, that process. It's a large mining company. And that company was actually having a critical business application required for compliance reason that was running on a DEC alpha system, running through 64 operating system. So that's a Unix proprietary system. And uh, the problem with that platform is that it was aging and some parts were at risk of failing. And then if that was failing, then they were not able to be compliant anymore with that financial application. So the customer decided to move that, uh, that application to AWS and they used a hardware emulator for, for that purpose. They were able to do the migration uh, within only two weeks. So the hardware emulation is really just lift and shift and that's closest to a, a rehost project. Now let's move on to middleware emulation. So with middleware emulation, you can see in blue what stays the same. It's only the application code and possibly some data formats. So what's happening here is that the middleware emulator 
will provide all the prerequisites that are required for the application to compile on the target AWS environment. So it's going to provide functionality such as uh, access to the legacy data store. So if there is uh, index file access, for example, that's required, that's going to, the emulator will provide that. It will provide support for transaction management. It will provide support for the legacy screens, uh, provide support for the legacy protocols. It will provide support for the uh, temporary storage, for example. It will also provide some uh, batch functionality so that the batch workload can also run on that emulator. So when you deal with such a project, well, all the code needs to be recompiled. And because the uh, emulator is slightly different than the original system, because the dependencies are slightly different as well, there are some mass code changes that happen. And that also means that there is thorough testing that's required. And that's why those projects typically take a year. Uh, there is a lot of 60 to 70% of those projects is around doing uh, integration and testing. Uh, because every single function that's been impacted needs to be retested on the AWS side. The value of such a middleware emulation is that you're going away from the uh, legacy proprietary stack. Um, you can see that you can also start using um, uh, managed services. Here you can see RDS is being used for the database. Um, you can start using elastic load balancing, possibly some auto-scaling, etc. So we see mostly customers using that, uh, that option, middleware emulation, when they want to leave the proprietary platform when they want to uh, retain the language. For example, if they are running COBOL, PL1, or RPGs, then they can keep that language running onto AWS. And we also see customers using that option when they deal with uh, dev and test environments. Uh, let me give you a customer example that's done this, uh, this option. It's a very large uh, beverage company. Uh, that company was running a mainframe with uh, 28 applications, 266 integration points. And uh, that application uh, had some COBOL and some assembly components. And so the customer chose a middleware emulator. They were able to recompile everything onto AWS. And once this was complete, they were able to actually save 72% of the maintenance costs on, the, on that system. And they also had better performance. The batch workload that were executing on the AWS side were actually going faster than the, the speed they were going on the mainframe side. So, Middleware emulation is really about porting the code and then recompiling on the middleware emulator on AWS. Now let's talk about legacy automated refactoring. So why is it called automated refactoring? Well, it's called automated refactoring because you're actually preserving the business functionality, but then there are some transformations that, that are happening within the underlying software stack. And transformations can be at, at multiple levels. The most common we see, of course, is code conversion. Uh, many customers want to go away from co COBOL or RPG or PR1, and they want to modernize to Java or C Sharp, so that's one possibility. Um, if these customers want to modernize the underlying data stores, they can also do that. So, for example, they can move from an index file to a relational database, or from a hierarchical database to a graph database. So these are all options that are possible through automated refactoring. So with automated refactoring, there is no manual code rewrite. So, so we're not redeveloping the code here. So toolset is taking care of all the transformation. It applies to many languages. So as mentioned, it applies to COBOL, PL1, Power Builder, and many other flavors so that it can cover many platforms. Um, automated refactoring allows you to do incremental transition. It allows you to do incremental transition from uh, the legacy platform to AWS, incremental transition from the legacy language, for example, from COBOL to Java, legacy transitions also from basic compute to containers or to a serverless stack. It also allows you to do uh, incremental transition from a, a monolith to microservices. So 
The advantage of using automated refactoring, while well, you can see that on the right-hand side, you don't have any element of the legacy stack anymore. So you eliminate the legacy technologies. It also preserves the functional equivalence, which is very important, because that allows doing unit testing and integration testing that are equivalent across the platform to validate that everything is still functional. And also it provides agility, and it allows the target application to leverage some cloud-native services. So I do have a customer example for the automated refactoring. That customer is a world-renowned newspaper, and that customer had a home delivery uh, software that was running on the mainframe. Uh, it was made of two million lines of uh, COBOL code, two terabytes of vSAM files, and so they decided to actually convert and do the automated refactoring to a Java stack uh, using a relational database. By doing so, they were able to reduce their cost by 70%, they were able to introduce a CI-CD pipeline so that they could get faster time to market for their new features. And they were able also to start converging the various platforms that, that they are currently running so that they can be more competitive within their market. So automated refactoring is really about preserving the business functionality while transforming the underlying stack so that you can adopt modern technology. Now I want to talk about um, modern middleware replatforming. So there are some cases where um, you have the same middleware that's available across operating system, across a legacy operating system, such as uh, AIX or um, Solaris or HPUX, or even on the ZOS side, and across an operating system that you find available on the AWS side. So when that's the case, the middleware is actually facilitating the transition and the migration. So let me give you an example. Um, if you have a Java workload that's running on a JVM, and it could be a Java application server as well, such as WebSphere or WebLogic. Well, if you're migrating that application to uh, AWS, you can actually reuse the same uh, middleware. The same code base of the middleware will be available on a Linux, for example, environment, or even on Windows on, on AWS. So that means that the software package or the Java application code that's currently running on the legacy platform can be exported and then re-imported on the AWS side with almost no changes. And this is very well documented by the vendors that provide all the instruction on how to move from one platform to another. On the database side as well, it's, it's the same process. So if you're using a database such as Oracle that's available on a, on a legacy system, if you pick the same version and you make it run on a, a Linux or on a Windows environment on AWS, well, you can typically do also uh, export, import, or backup restore of your data and have it available and facilitate the migration to AWS. So we see customers that are using that approach when they want to standardize the stack, the stack and when they want to go to manage services. The advantage of doing that is that you go away from the legacy operating system, but at the same time, you preserve the middleware and all the application stack and the data that you have running on top of it. So I do have a custom example for that uh, option. It's a large US telecommunication provider, and that uh, provider was running um, a Solaris on Spark system, and we're having, was running many middleware on top of it was running some WebSphere, some WebLogic actually, and also some uh, Oracle databases. And they decided to migrate all of this over to AWS. So they picked exactly the same versions, they deployed that on a Linux environment on EC2 instances. They chose to move to uh, RDS using uh, Oracle database. And so once they were deployed on, on the AWS side, one of the, the good things is that they were able to scale. 
So they actually used that infrastructure to support the launch of a new product. So they were very confident about the scalability of the infrastructure once moved to AWS. So modern middleware platforming is really about leveraging the middleware capabilities to smooth the transition from the legacy uh, operating system to AWS. So we went through the various options to do migration, right? We've seen hardware emulation, we've seen middleware emulation, automated refactoring, and middleware replatforming. Now I want to talk about the augmentation options. So all the options that allow the functioning in hybrid mode, preserving the legacy system uh, on-premises, but still getting some value from the AWS side. And the most common scenario we see from customers is when they use uh, AWS for data analytics. So oftentimes, those legacy platforms have been uh, running for decades. So there is historical data that's critical for the business to understand what the, their customer behaviors are. And customers want to be able to leverage that. So the way they do that is actually use replication tools. And there is a wide support of replication tools. So for all the platforms that I mentioned precedingly, there are replication tools. All the databases, you can find a good support about all the various types of platform. And then that data gets replicated over to AWS. Typically, it gets replicated to S3, to a data lake, for example, or it can get replicated to a relational database. And then once it's on AWS, once all the AWS big data services are available, so whether you want to transform the data furthermore with EMR, or whether you want to create a data pipeline, whether you want to do analytics, you want to get some, create some reports, etc. there are many services you can use on the AWS side. So let me give you a customer example of a customer that did that. So that customer is a, a publisher of a children's book, and they had an AS400 platform. And they were willing to be able to do some business intelligence and make the employee allow uh, the ability to do business intelligence queries on the DB2 AS400 um, database. The problem is that with the database, the DB2 AS400 database, first it was very expensive and it would take weeks before uh, any employee was able to actually run and create a new query because of the complexity of the data structure and how it's set up. So what the customer decided to do is that they use EMR to actually access the DB2 AS400 platform, retrieve the data, push that data into a rich, uh, Redshift uh, data warehouse, and then they use EMR again to extract that data and Tableau to be able to display that data for the end users. And so rather than have taking weeks to build a simple request to do business intelligence queries on that data, they were able to reduce that to minutes. So it was a great benefit to the uh, employees of that company. So that's the most common scenario we see uh, for augmentation because it's a quick and easy scenario that customers can do. Just replicate the data over and then use the AWS Big Data Services to be able to uh, do analytics from it. Another scenario we see often is when customers decide to use AWS for new channels or new functions on the AWS side. So it's almost an extension of the preceding use case. So rather than using the data for analytics, customers choose to create new functionality on the AWS side. So that new functionality can serve many purposes. But in most cases, what we see is that customers use it to actually address new channels. For example, if customers want to create a new functionality for a mobile user, or if the customer wants to create new functionality for a, a voice interface, then AWS provides the services that can, uh, that can do that quickly. So let me give you a, an example of a customer doing that. It's a US commercial bank, and they had a, a mainframe system. Uh, and the mainframe system was, is, and is still doing all the bank account management. But uh, that customer wanted to be able to provide that bank account capability 
uh, to their mobile users. And they wanted to, their mobile users to be able to see which transactions have been performed on their, on their bank account. So what they did is that they actually copied over the transactions from the database on the, on the mainframe side onto AWS within the DynamoDB database. And then they created some Lambda functions that would actually replicate or mimic the behavior of the Get Transaction API and make that available through API gateway to the mobile users. So you can see that all that stack was serverless, right? The uh, data store is DynamoDB, that's serverless. Lambda is serverless as well, and API Gateway is serverless. So the good thing with that solution is that first it scales seamlessly, and then it's, it's very cheap to operate. From a data replication perspective, you can use similar tools as tools that were used for data analytics before. So typically here you want to get to close to real-time replication. So you can use CDC-based tool, change data capture-based tools, or some customers also use some messaging middleware, such as MQ, to replicate the data over from the legacy system to AWS. Another use case we see with customers is when customers want to uh, keep production on the legacy system, but they still would like to get the convenience of using AWS for development and test environments. So there are many goals that the customer pursue when they go to that option. They try to reduce the consumption of the legacy platform, especially if it's an expensive mainframe where resources can be, expen can be expensive. So they would prefer to use AWS because it's, it's much cheaper. But it's also for scalability reasons. It's very common to see those legacy uh, systems that are almost at peak capacity and they don't have much cycles left in terms of CPU or memory so that they can generate new environments. And so they choose AWS because then on the AWS side, they can scale seamlessly. So we see customers creating CI-CD pipelines, and we also see customers using that for educational onboarding purposes. So they can quickly create a dev test environment for a new employee or a new class, and then make that available, re reproduce the behavior of the production application, and be in a, uh, in a safe, free environment where they can do all experimentations. So how does it work? Well, typically customers would put an IDE on an EC2 instance, or they could put the emulators. Uh, we've described the hardware emulator and the middleware emulator. Well, any, any of them could be used for, for that purposes. The, and uh, le let me give you an example, actually, that's going to be easier. Uh, we have um, a multinational financial company based in Asia Pacific that's using that model. Um, they have hundreds of COBOL developers that are developing for, for a mainframe. And the problem is that a mainframe is a peak capacity. And of course, it's expensive for every new project to allocate resources, and that mainframe system gets constrained. So rather than adding more resources to the mainframe, the ones they chose to actually put all their dev and test on the AWS side. So they allocated one EC2 instance per developer, and that EC2 instance has both an IDE and an emulator for uh, unit testing. And then they allocated some more um, uh, EC2 instances for the testers as well that are also running some emulators. And by doing so, they were able to remove actually all the dev and tests that they currently had running on the mainframe side, move them over to AWS. Plus, they had some flexibility to actually start new projects at any time, stop the, stop the environments when they don't need them anymore, and just start some new ones when there is a new project coming up. So they got a lot of flexibility while doing some huge cost savings. And the last uh, option we're seeing around augmentation is when customers want to benefit from the uh, cloud storage flexibility and cost efficiency. In many cases, when you look at the legacy non-existing systems for backup and archival, well, they rely on tapes. 
So they rely on virtual tape servers, they rely on virtual tape libraries, automated tape libraries, and all this infrastructure is quite expensive and rigid. So customers are looking at cloud storage so that they can actually get some flexibility from those use cases. So there is a wide support um, of those solutions uh, across all the legacy platforms. So it's available on the mainframe side, it's available on the mid-range, it's available for Unix property systems. As soon as the cloud storage tier is supported by the backup software, then typically you can actually put the data in S3 or in Glacier and benefit from the cost efficiencies there. So let me give you an example. We had a motorcycle company. Uh, that company was, uh, is actually still using some tapes to do the backup on a casual. But suddenly they received a, a new compliance requirement where they had to actually ship the data over to another region. And rather than just uh, in putting in place a new system where they would have to ship the tapes over, they decided to use AWS. So they defined a cloud storage tier within their environment and they just decided to push the data over to a, another AWS region and that would satisfy their compliance requirement. So it was a quick and uh, easy and cheap solution for the customer to satisfy that new requirement. And we, you will see, if you look precisely at all the um, backup and cover solutions now, more and more are supporting the cloud storage tier. So it's, it, typically it's just a matter of including that, uh, uh, that tier within the um, data lifecycle policies. All right, so we've talked about how we can do migration, how we can do augmentation. And now I want to talk about how we can deliver quality. And quality on two aspects. Quality in terms of reducing risks for how we approach those projects, and also quality in terms of how we can provide quality of service to support some of the critical business workloads that are running on those legacy platforms and making sure that those critical workloads have good quality of service on the AWS side. So first, let's talk about the approach. So you understand from looking at all those options that uh, almost all of them rely on some tools. Either a tool to do hardware emulation, or a tool to do middleware emulation, or a tool to do automated refactoring, or a tool to do data replication, etc. So the tool is really a critical success factor. And whenever we're doing a project, we want to make sure that the tool is actually able to support some of the most complex aspects of the technical platform that we're trying to modernize. And we do that by what we call a complex POC. And there is no one-size-fits-all in terms of tools. There is no one-size-fits-all in terms of vendors. So we want to make sure that for the specific customer requirements, the tool is able to address the complexity of the customer. And the sooner we do that, then the better we can de-risk the project moving forward. So how do we get to the complex POC? First, we look at the legacy requirements. And legacy requirements are not only the technical requirements of the legacy platform, but also what are the business objectives. Because each tool, as you understand, has different capabilities or different value proposition in terms of how fast it goes, the type of uh, target stack that you're going to get, etc. So by aligning the uh, business objectives with the technical requirements and the modernization options available from AWS, then we are able to define which option should be more appropriate. Once we define which option seems to be more appropriate, then we get into uh, identifying which tool could support that option. And for every option, there are multiple tools on the market that can support that option. So we look at uh, each and every tool, we go through the presentations, through evaluations, and those evaluations have to be specific to what the customer is trying to achieve. And there are some fine nuances 
between the customer objectives because you cannot have it all. So customers have to choose whether it's important to have speed, whether it's important to have code quality, code that can be maintained, whether it's important to keep the current development teams, etc. So there are many factors that can come in into, in the decision process. And once the tool seems appropriate, we want to get into the complex POC very quickly. So the complex POC doesn't mean it's a very long complex that's going to take forever. It means that a few test cases that are going to be uh, proven during the POC needs to be of highest complexity. We don't want customers to be in a situation where they start a project with a tool, and then suddenly in the middle of the project, when they get into the high complexity items, they notice that the tools cannot support their complexity. That happened in the past, and we don't want that to happen in the future. So by doing the complex POC as soon as possible, then we can de-risk and avoid this from happening. And an uh, example of complexity can be uh, low latency requirements, can be uh, certain languages that need to be transformed, can be uh, a batch workload, for example. We know that batch can do a lot of IOs, and some customers are skeptical around the capabilities of running that on the AWS side. So batch could be a, a good example, for example, of, a, of what you would want to attach with a complex POC. And once a complex POC is successful, then we can move on to do the architecture design. The architecture design will totally depend on which tool is being chosen. So it's important to understand which tool, and then we can use and define what the architecture will look like. Once we have an architecture design that's defined, then we can define which are the activities, the phases that are required to carry out the project, and then we can move on to delivery. Now, when we do a migration of a, a legacy workload, one of the most common reasons that come from customers are, well, what about security? How secure is that going to be on, on the AWS side? How about high availability? It's a highly available workload that I have on my legacy platform. How is that going to be highly available on the AWS side? What about the cost? So for all of these, we do have strong features and capabilities on the AWS side. But sometimes it's difficult to understand which one should be leveraged from a customer perspective. So in order to help with defining how it should be implemented and designed for AWS, we use what we call the AWS Well-Architected Framework. That framework has been developed over the years by uh, solution architects and uh, pro-serve consultants and includes many of the best practices that are available with AWS for uh, security, reliability, performance efficiency, cost optimization, and operational excellence. So by using those best practices, we know that we can satisfy many of the customer requirements for legacy workloads coming to AWS. And if we don't even know how to use those best practices, well, there are two services that are available uh, and very handy uh, within any AWS account. Customers can use a well-architected tool, and they can also use Trusted Advisor. So now I want to show you that when we look closer at uh, certain uh, requirements around security, availability, and system management, we do have strong capabilities on the AWS side. So let's start with uh, security. Um, security is a top a priority for AWS. And the good thing with, uh, when you move a workload to AWS is that uh, you inherit some of the features and best practices, best practices that are coming from some of the most secure uh, secu secure or security sensitive organizations. So we, we can address many aspects of security and we can spend days talking about security, but I really want to highlight here some of how we can implement some of the security features to meet some of the uh, requirements coming from legacy workloads. Let's start with data confidentiality. Well, for data confidentiality, typically we do encryption. And some uh, legacy platforms uh, can do encryption everywhere. And we can almost do the same with AWS. 
Uh, we can do encryption for data in flight. Uh, we can do encryption for data at rest. So for data in flight, for example, we can use AWS VPN, and that will encrypt all the data coming in. Uh, for data at rest, we can encrypt the data within EBS volumes, and we can also encrypt the data within RDS. And all the keys that are being used can be exported and stored in a central location within AWS KMS, Key Management Service. Um, another aspect of security that's important is network security. And within AWS, we use very similar techniques that's being used on-premises. We use segmentation and isolation techniques. We can do isolation and segmentation at the uh, AWS account level. We can do that at the VPC level. We can do that at the subnet level. And then we can also do that for the incoming uh, network flows with direct connect. Um, then we can use firewalls. So we can use security groups. We can use network access control lists. On the legacy platforms, oftentimes you see there are some uh, central uh, security management um, software that's, that's available. And on the AWS side, we also do that. So for example, with um, Amazon Inspector, we can do assessments of the security posture of many EC2 instances. Uh, with uh, AWS Config, we can look at all the configuration within an AWS account and see what's compliant with certain regulation. And anytime it's not compliant, then alarms get generated. With organization service control policies, we can define a maximum level of permissions for each AWS account so that whenever there is a workload that's being deployed to a new AWS account, then that AWS account has to stay within certain restrictions. So overall, the uh, customer responsibilities are reduced when they do uh, deploy a workload on uh, AWS. And the reason is because there is a shared responsibility model. The, uh, with a shared responsibility model, AWS is responsible for the security of the cloud, while the customer is only responsible for the security in the cloud. So you can see that with so some of those security features, we can easily meet or exceed the legacy workload security requirements that may, happen, that are, that may happen. Now let's move on to high availability. So oftentimes we see legacy workloads coming from a, a legacy platform and customers are wondering, how can I do high availability on the AWS side? Well, uh, high availability with AWS depends on what we call availability zones. An availability zone is one or multiple data centers. And when we do high availability of a legacy application deployed on AWS, we use multiple availability zones. So that means multiple data centers that are physically separated from multiple kilometers apart from one another or multiple miles apart from one another. So that means as soon as we deploy that workload across multiple availability zones, we, can do, we have redundancy and we are protected from a natural disaster impacting one data center. And you can see on this picture that there are two availability zones, but typically you can deploy your workload onto three availability zones. We even have some regions that have up to six availability zones. So you can spread your workload across six availability zones. So as you can see the application is spread across two uh, EC2 instances. On the data side, um, the good thing with the availability zones is that they're far away from one another, but at the same time, they're close enough so that you can have synchronous replication that's happening. So on the data side, that's important because that means we can actually have a, a master standby database setup where we can replicate the data from RDS from one availability zone to another uh, in real time. Now, if you want higher level of, of availability, we can also use Aurora. And with Aurora, there are actually six copies across three availability zones that are being kept at any time. If we want higher level of av availability, we can use Aurora Multimaster. 
because with Aurora Multimaster, we can actually be in an active-active topology where read-write transactions can happen on any availability zones. Um, with, with that setup, uh, you can see that not only we, start, we have high availability, but we can also start doing scalability or elasticity. You can see there is an auto-scaling group here. And with the auto-scaling groups, we can add and remove instances on the fly. So depending on the workload that's coming in and reaching the elastic load balancer, spreading out the load across the availability zones, well, depending on that workload and how busy the instances are, we can add or remove instances. If there is an unhealthy instance, that instance gets terminated automatically with a health check, and then another healthy instance gets started. So on each availability zone, we could have multiple instances, and we can grow, scale out, scale back in, depending on the demand. Uh, I've also shown on this diagram another region. And the reason I'm, I'm doing so is because, first, we can satisfy some uh, disaster recovery requirements. But also, if the customer is interested in global availability, then we can use multiple regions. So we can replicate data all over. We can even use uh, an Aurora a global database if we want to. So there are multiple mechanisms so that the data can be pushed over to multiple regions and have a highly available um, setup across multiple regions. So you can see here again that with those high availability uh, setup and, and architectures, we can meet or exceed most of the uh, legacy workloads requirements for high availability. And I also want to touch on system management. So for most organizations, uh, they typically follow ITSM or ITIL uh, service management practices. And for every single practice of that framework, well, there are typically some functionality that's required and some software that could support it. So let me focus on just a few items here to, to show you what we can do from a system management perspective. Um, a, a central component of doing system management on AWS is CloudWatch. Uh, CloudWatch has the ability to collect metrics across multiple uh, EC2 instances or multiple AWS services. And then once those metrics are being collected in a central location, then you can actually do a mo live monitoring, of course, but you can also set up alarms and trigger some notification if any problem is, is happening. CloudWatch can also be used to centralize the logs. So if there are logs that are coming from se se separate systems, then those logs can be centralized, and you can do um, uh, trigger alarms based on certain messages that you find in the logs. So you can get notified in case of an error or in case of uh, an exception that's happening within an application. Oftentimes, on the legacy system, we see heavy usage of automation because, I mean, those systems have been tuned for a long time, so automation is pretty important for those systems. Well, with AWS, we also are big promoters of automation. We promote infrastructure as code, whereas infrastructure is being defined and configured within the application itself. We also promote uh, CI-CD pipelines. We can use uh, AWS cl cloud formation to automate uh, templates and resource creation. We can use the cloud uh, development kit so that within an application, we can actually generate and configure AWS resources. And we can also use Amazon Machine Image so that uh, a prepackaged image is ready to be launched uh, for a new EC2 instance. Many of the uh, legacy systems also have uh, systems to do uh, cost, uh, chargeback, and reporting. And for that purpose, within AWS, we can use uh, cost allocation tags. We can use Cost Explorer and we can also use cost and usage report. So here again, this is to show that from a system management perspective, we have many services available that can meet or exceed most common requirements that we see from legacy workloads. Sometimes we do have some requirements around um, latency. 
sometimes we hear a customer that says, oh, but I cannot put my legacy workload on, on AWS because the latency is going to be too big. Or we hear some requirements that mandates uh, the resources to be deployed uh, on premises. Or we hear that um, uh, there is a high interaction with the system of record that's still on premises, so we cannot move a legacy application to AWS. Well, when that's the case, I want you to think about AWS Outposts. AWS Outposts is a fully managed AWS infrastructure on-premises. So with AWS Outposts, you can actually deploy a legacy application on uh, EC2 instance. You can, you can configure some EBS volumes. You can configure some VPCs. You can leverage CloudWatch. So when you hear certain requirements around latency or the fact that it needs to be on-premises, think about Outposts, and that could solve those requirements as well. All right, so we've seen how to do migration, how to do augmentation, how to provide quality of service, quality in terms of the approach to modernization. And now I want to suggest to you some, some next steps. So if you want to learn more uh, about the migration options that we've seen today, uh, there is a, an article that's called Demystifying Legacy Migration Options that, go, that goes deeper into each of every option and contrasts and compares them. So you can learn more about this. If you're interested more in the customer success stories and some of them that I mentioned, and you want to learn more about how fast it went, some of their business priorities, etc., we also have some articles uh, under those links that are available for you to, to, to discover. And if you want to learn more about some of the tools that we're using for uh, emulation, for automated refactoring, for data replication, then as well, if you go to those links, you'll be able to learn about those tools. Let me suggest to you a proposed uh, action plan. Um, if you have a legacy uh, platform that's available within a, a data center and you want to modernize it, first you have to start by identifying a specific workload, right? You have to choose one that's a good representation, typically non-business critical to start with. And then once you have that legacy workload identified, you want to define or collect what are all the business and technical requirements. And we can help with that. We have questionnaires we can use uh, to collect all the proper information so that we can align the right option that can achieve the business objectives that the customer is trying to achieve. Then we typically go through all the available options on the AWS side. We do evaluations, which options is most suitable for the business objectives that the customer is trying to achieve. And then once an option is selected, we get into the uh, evaluation and selection of the tools and potential partners that could help with that modernization. And then finally, uh, you should confirm always the selection with the complex proof of concept as soon as possible. So you've seen throughout this presentation that we have many customers that have been successful doing modernization of legacy platform to AWS. And with all the options that we've seen, we, have, we can satisfy many of the business requirements of what customers are trying to achieve with AWS. We have the quality of service that can support the critical business applications that are coming from those legacy platforms. So we should modernize those legacy systems to AWS. So if you see a legacy system that needs modernization, feel free to reach out to us. We'll be glad to help. Thank you.